Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton and this is Rules-Based Disorder here on Colin. Today I'm going to welcome uh, listeners to take question, to ask questions and I'll respond to them. So I'm still waiting for people to come on in. So if anyone has any questions, please feel free to go ahead and ask. I'm going to start briefly here. Just I'll chat about a few things that are happening in the news while I'm waiting for people to ask questions. First, I mean, an important story today is Finland is now joining NATO. And I mean, this really, for me, it says a lot of things. One, it shows that the idea of Scandinavian neutrality has always been completely absurd. Scandinavia is not neutral. Norway has been a member of NATO. And in fact, Norway played a key role in the NATO war on Libya. In fact, Norway in percentage, in terms of the percentage of its role within the NATO military forces, it disproportionately was involved in bombing Libya in the 2011 war. And now we have Finland and potentially Sweden joining NATO. I mean, it shows this, it really exposes this myth that Scandinavia is this enlightened, great socialist place. I mean, it is really sad to see Bernie Sanders constantly say, I'm, I'm a democratic socialist like Scandinavia which is not socialist, it's social democratic, and it's a, it's a key part of the imperialist system. Denmark has been a colonial power for hundreds of years. It had colonies. The reality is that Scandinavia has played a key role in the imperialist world system. And now that Finland is joining the NATO military alliance, this, this U.S.-led military alliance that destroyed Yugoslavia, that no longer exists as a state, it destroyed Libya, the central government of Libya, and since 2011, there has been no central government in Libya still today. So the idea of NATO being a defensive alliance is, is preposterous. NATO has always been a pro-war alliance. And I constantly stress, we need to understand the historical context. When NATO was founded in 1949, one of its founding members included the fascist dictatorship of Portugal. So the idea that NATO is pro-democracy is also ridiculous. It has never been pro-democracy. And then, of course, you know, anyone who uh, wants to learn more about NATO's horrific crimes should check out an interview that I recently did with friend of the show, Asa Wynn Stanley, a really good British journalist at Electronica Defada. I did an interview with him, and you can find it over at the Multipolarista YouTube channel in the podcast version, in which we talked about Operation Gladio. Operation Gladio is this little-known operation that was carried out by NATO in which the military alliance supported former Nazis and fascists and created these armies in Europe that were planning to eventually wage war with the Soviet Union. And in the meantime, they were acting as basically secret police and terrorist forces inside Western Europe, waging a kind of internal war against the left. And this has been acknowledged in mainstream media, the role of NATO in supporting in Italy, especially far-right extremists that carried out terrorist attacks targeting, targeting the left. So now Finland, which is supposedly some great, you know, democratic socialist with a trademark sign government. I mean, the fact that it's now joining this military alliance that has always been a pro-war alliance that has literally a history of supporting fascists. It's it's not very surprising. And at the same time, I mean, in a few days ago, we had another episode in which we kind of talked about the left position on the war in Ukraine and the anti-imperialist position. And unfortunately, I think this is yet another example of how, of course, the U.S. and NATO are the ones that started the war in Ukraine and pushed Russia into this position. But it has ended up strengthening NATO. And now we see the U.S. government just passed $40 billion for, in mil military assistance. I mean, they say other assistance, but it's pretty much just military assistance for Ukraine. I mean, flooding that country with weapons. Ukraine is the poorest country in all of Europe. That fact is almost never mentioned in mainstream corporate media reports on Ukraine. It's the poorest country in Europe. It has been devastated, especially since the U.S.-backed coup in 2014, with neoliberal policies imposed on it. And I mean, the previous president before Zelensky was a billionaire oligarch who made his money off of candy, which is why he was known as the chocolate billionaire, the chocolate king. 
And, and I mean, the reality is now the situation has continued getting worse and worse in Ukraine. And the solution in the U.S. is not to provide any economic assistance after a political solution. The solution is to flood the country with tens of billions of dollars of weapons and to bleed Ukraine, bleed Russia into the last Ukrainian. It's it's really sad. And the fact that the supposedly enlightened progressive Scandinavian countries are now joining in, it, it really exposes that. If if Norway's role in the destruction of, of Libya, the most prosperous country in Africa, if that didn't convince you, I mean, I... I just have no patience for the idea that Scandinavia is like some great model of so-called socialism. It's not in any way. And this isn't even to mention the, you know, I, I talked about Scandinavia's role in imperialism, in exploiting the global south, in wars of aggression, in the war in Libya. I didn't even mention Sweden's role in sending weapons around the world as one of the world's leading military contractors and weapons manufacturers. And this isn't to mention either the internal policies of these countries where the far right is on the rise with racist anti-immigrant movements. So it's about time that, you know, the, the U.S. left and other parts of the Western left drop this idea that Scandinavia is some great enlightened place because it's very much not. But with that said, uh, welcome to everyone here who's joined. Please uh, feel free to, to join the, the queue here if you have any questions. And I want to, you know, open this up for a discussion today. So please go ahead. Um, but yeah, I mean, while I'm waiting for people to join here, I think another thing that's really interesting to see right now is the so-called Summit of the Americas that the U.S. government is hosting in California is very quickly falling apart. And this is this is really historic. The Summit of the Americas goes back to 1994. It was first called by Bill Clinton and this was the same year when Clinton passed NAFTA. So this is the, this was the U.S. imposing these neoliberal so-called free trade agreements on the region. And the Summit of the Americas was also hosted really under the rubric of the Organization of American States, the OAS, which is really a vehicle for U.S. power, an arm of the U.S. State Department. It gets the majority of its funding from the U.S. government. It's located physically in Washington. And going back to 1994, the Summit of the Americas was not annual, but it did bring together pretty much all the countries in Latin America and the Caribbean except for Cuba, which, you know, of course, was was ignored and excluded just as Cuba was expelled from the OAS back in 1962, which is what led Fidel Castro to call it infamously the Yankee Ministry of the Colonies. And what's incredible is that Although uh, certainly the progressive and left-wing governments in Latin America have never been strong supporters of the Summit of the Americas and, you know, cheerleading on its behalf, they have participated in the past. But we're now seeing a campaign, a, a an unprecedented campaign to boycott the Summit of the Americas, which is coming up this June in Los Angeles. And in the previous episode, people can check out, uh, we talked a little bit about the protests that are being planned by groups like the Answer Coalition, Code Pink, and other um, social movements that are planning and protesting. Well, I mean, that's good to see, but actually uh, there might be so few leaders who actually attend the Summit of the Americas that it's just going to be an irrelevant exercise in marketing because we've seen that Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, has said that he's not going to attend if the U.S. government refuses to invite Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua which, of course, it refuses to do. And now the latest development is that Bolivia's president, Luis Arce, of the Movement Toward Socialism Party, has also said that he is going to refuse to attend the Summit of the Americas in L.A. this June if any countries in the Americas are excluded. And the 14 members of CARICOM, the Caribbean community, these are the 14 um, Caribbean states they have also said that they're going to boycott if Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua are not allowed to attend. So this is, I think, further accelerating this attempt by Latin America to create independent alternative institutions to the Organization of American States, the Summit of the Americas, 
and of course any neoliberal trade agreement that the U.S. has been trying to impose. This is what led to the creation of things like the CELAC, C-E-L-A-C, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States. This is what also led to UNASUR, the Union of South American States. And this is also what led to the Bolivarian Alliance, the ALBA, which is an economic alliance, which is extremely important. And also we saw recently that Lula da Silva, the former president of Brazil, who is leading in all of the polls for the upcoming October election in Brazil, he has also said that if he wins the election, he is going to create a Latin American currency called the Sur, which means South. So, I mean, we're seeing so many historic developments here and the unprecedented massive boycott of the Summit of the Americas, I think, really can go down in the, in the history books here as a, a, a ma massive act of rebellion against the U.S. But again, uh, anyone who wants to jump in, please feel free to jump in. I, uh, I'll take questions here and we can have more of a conversation. Uh, we got a few people here, so jump in uh, into the speaker's queue here. But uh, while, while I'm waiting for that, I'll also, I also want to point out a really important article that was just published over at Brazil Wire. Brazil Wire is, in my opinion, the best English language source for reporting on Brazil. And it's run by independent journalists who are actually in Brazil, and they really have their, their finger on the pulse of the social movements. And they just published a really important article talking about the allegations made by the main top newspaper in Brazil. It's basically kind of like their equivalent of the New York Times. It's very mainstream. It's called the Folha de Sao Paulo. And it had just published an article saying that they have evidence. They found that the current far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, is planning a coup with support from the military and support from right-wing politicians in, in the Congress and the parliament. And this is, I mean, not surprising, unfortunately, but we really, sh I mean, if you are not familiar with Brazilian politics, you have to really understand that this newspaper is completely establishment and completely mainstream. It's like the New York Times saying that it has evidence of a coup being planned. I mean, uh, obviously, well, the New York Times is not trustworthy, but I mean, this is not like some fringe newspaper. This is straight up as mainstream as it gets saying that Bolsonaro has a coup plan. And of course, I, I should have, I should mention that this report came out just days after the top U.S. diplomat, Victoria Newland visited Brazil. Victoria Newland is a hardcore right-wing neoconservative. She is married to Robert Kagan, the neoconservative in Washington, who also is one of the co- he was one of the co-founders of the Project for the New American Century, involved in the Iraq War. I mean, Victoria Newland is a straight-up Bush-style neoconservative, and her name should be more well-known because Victoria Newland was one of the main architects of the coup in Ukraine in 2014. So this disaster we've seen in Ukraine is largely a product of Victoria Newland, and she just went to Brazil, and we don't really know what she was doing, but it's obviously very suspicious. And then a few days later, the main major newspaper in Brazil says that there are plans of a coup. And of course, wh why would there be a coup? According to the report, Bolsonaro and the military, which the military makes up a huge part of his government and his cabinet positions. They say that they are planning a coup if Lula da Silva wins the election in October. And pretty much every single poll shows Lula da Silva easily winning in potentially in a landslide. So that, I mean, again, we really need to keep an eye on this. This is very concerning. And if you want to know more about it, I would definitely recommend checking out the website Brazil Wire. They also talked about this very shady thing that the CIA is doing right now. And it's very, very much like a, a kind of Democrat tactic with, a, with an uppercase D, where the CIA released this very strange public statement telling Bolsonaro not to meddle in the election. And it really seems like some kind of reverse psychology, 
the CIA trying to cover up its tracks and see, oh, no, 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 we don't want a coup in Brazil. Why would we want a coup in Brazil? It's not like we have a history of supporting coups in Brazil. Of course, the CIA does. It did support the famous coup that led to a fascist military junta that the U.S. backed under Plan Condor, Operation Condor, in which these right-wing regimes in South America were, you know, disappearing, torturing, killing leftists. So the CIA releases very strange public statement saying Bolsonaro should not meddle in the election. It should be a free and fair election, which very suspiciously seems to me that it's the CIA trying to cover its tracks because now Flores Sao Paulo, the main newspaper, said that they have evidence of Bolsonaro planning a coup. And if the coup happens, and we'll see, but if the coup does happen, if Lula wins the election and they have a military coup, then the U.S. could be, oh, well, we warned about this. The CIA said it was against it. It's obviously not us, which, I mean, I, only someone who's extremely naive could fall for that. But it really shows one of these interesting tactics that the CIA is using right now about Brazil. And it also is a, just a way of trying to scare Brazilians into not voting for Lula da Silva and allowing Bolsonaro to supposedly win the election by rigging it against Lula. Because, you know, if the major superpower just right up in the north is threatening your country and saying, oh, you can have a free and fair election, but of course, if the wrong candidate wins, we're going to punish you. I mean, that's not very free and fair election, is it? So again, I want to welcome everyone here. Uh, please feel free to join in the speakers here and I'll, I'll take questions and we can have more of a conversation. So, uh, anyone just please feel free to go ahead and join. And, uh, you should be able to just, it's public. So anyone should just be able to go ahead and join in the queue to, here we go. Uh, there we go. All right. You're up. Mana, Monica, Mon money, money. Hi, Ben. Hey, how you um, doing? I'm fine. Um, I just hopped on, um, but I just read um, a bill um, that's going to pass the Senate, or I think it's been, it's passed the House um, to uh, stop malign influence in the African continent by Russia. Um, so I know you've probably already been talking about general uh, imperial chauvinism and meddling in affairs um search you talked about brazil but um if you like to speak like a bit i don't know if you're tired of talking about um this subject but um, a bit on how um you know this kind of invasion of ukraine is allowing um the united states or they're using it to further um malign um any other country that isn't in line with imperial um, goals and how, um, you know, this, this is going to like change the landscape. Do you think like the, um, I wouldn't, uh, maybe not easy, but how easy do you think another pole rising will be? Or will we like see a long time of um, countries like really being um, their economies destroyed by sanctions by, um, you know, all of this imperial aggression? Yeah, great question. I have to say, I mean, it's so hilarious seeing the U.S. government accuse other countries of misinformation or disinformation. I mean, it, it's absolutely absurd, especially if you look at some of the propaganda published by U.S. government media outlets in other languages. In English, they sometimes have to keep it like a little, the propaganda a little more subtle because then people in the U.S. could see, like, the ridiculous propaganda that's spreading. But, for instance, Voice of America, which is a CIA-created U.S. government propaganda outlet, they have many different languages, um, many different publications in many different languages, and they have a very active branch in Persian targeting Iran. And I've talked to many friends and colleagues who speak Persian, and they just say, like, it's the most cartoonishly ridiculous propaganda. It's actual disinformation. I mean, also, uh, Radio Marti is the Spanish language arm of the CIA created propaganda network funded by the U.S. government. And it was originally created during the first Cold War targeting Cuba. And the U.S. would, you know, broadcast the, this propaganda into Cuba to try to, uh, spread propaganda to demonize the government and destabilize the government. 
And I've, I've listened to Radio Marti. I've seen their videos. I've read their articles in Spanish. I mean, it's also just ridiculous propaganda. They refer to, you know, Venezuela with an elected government as a dictatorship and a regime and say that, that Maduro is a drug trafficker. And I mean, it's, it's just all ridiculous nonsense. So it's hilarious seeing the U.S. accuse Russia of supposedly spreading disinformation in Africa. And it's not just the U.S. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned this legislation, but it's also Europe. The European Union just had a meeting, actually, with Google. And they Google publicized this, and the European Union publicized this on Twitter, like boasting. And you have, like, these white European Union officials who met with Google, and then they tweeted about why it's important to challenge Russian disinformation in Africa. So this is the European Union... I mean, actual colonialists, the descendants of the leaders of these colonial countries that committed genocide all across Africa and Asia and Latin America. They are meeting with these massive corporations and talking about why these white saviors need to censor information in Africa because they think apparently that Africans are so stupid they can't tell what Russian so-called disinformation is. And when they say Russian disinformation, they mean another perspective on international politics that is not just Western, Western propaganda. And this is also related to, uh, there were, there were reports that Russia was planning and creating an RT Africa. RT is the main Russian media outlet and RT has, you know, branches in Spanish for Latin America, in Arabic for West Asia and, and, and North Africa. They have, uh, you know, many different languages. They also have France, um, French RT and German RT, which were banned in Europe before, by the way. It was banned in Germany before Russia even invaded Ukraine, which shows how much Germany cares about freedom of speech. But anyway, so RT was creating a branch focused on Africa, on, on you know, news coverage in Africa. And that, that's one of the main reasons there's been all this attention on so-called Russian disinformation in Africa. And it's also part of this, this disinformation drive targeting Africa because so many countries in Africa have refused to take the Western propaganda line on the war in Ukraine and have refused to impose sanctions on Russia over its military operation in Ukraine. And of course, th we should, we should definitely uh, give a lot of credit to the countries in Africa that still have revolutionary post-colonial governments, um, especially, you know, Eritrea, which voted not only um, many countries in Africa, in fact, over half of the African continent voted or rather abstained in the UN vote on the Russian invasion. So the U.S. pushed through this resolution in the UN to condemn Russia over its military operation in Ukraine. And of course, the U.S. and all these white countries and imperialist countries voted to condemn Russia, but half of the African continent, a little over half, either abstained or actually voted against the resolution. And Eritrea was one of those countries that voted against the resolution. Also, other countries that abstained and have not have refused to impose sanctions on Russia include Mozambique, Zimbabwe, South Africa. And South Africa's leadership has been very important. South Africa is one of the most uh, one of the largest countries in Africa with one of the largest economies. And, you know, uh, South Africa has played an important mediation role. It still has very uh, um, good ties with, with Russia, but also it has good ties with the West. And the president of South Africa, Soma Ramaphosa, who is not a revolutionary. I mean, he's from the, the ANC party, which is the party that overthrew apartheid and has governed since. And you know, it does have a history of a kind of left wing and anti-imperialist policy. But um, after the overthrow of the Soviet Union, it lost one of its most important allies. And the ANC kind of took a neoliberal turn, although it still has maintained an independent foreign policy. So anyway, some, some, Sir Ramaphosa is not, you know, he's certainly not like an Hugo Chavez figure, but uh, or a Muammar Gaddafi figure. And, you know, we see the consequences if you are a Chavez or Gaddafi figure, considering the NATO war that murdered Gaddafi in brutal fashion. But anyway, Simon Ramaphosa gave this interesting speech in Parliament in South Africa in which he said NATO bears responsibility for this war in Ukraine. And he said, you know, the West is trying to only blame Russia. And he said, we don't we don't endorse the invasion, 
But we should keep in mind that NATO bears responsibility for this war. And I mean, it's not just uh, South Africa. I mentioned Mozambique, um, also Angola, which also had a revolution against colonialism. Angola has been neutral. Congo has been neutral. Um, Uganda and Sudan have been neutral. And in fact, I'm going to get up really quickly. There was this insane article in The Guardian, which is, I mean, just a ridiculous propaganda arm. It's very close to the British security state, the, uh, you know, the spy agencies. And they, The Guardian published this really condescending kind of racist article about the position of multiple African governments toward Russia. And I just got it up here at The Guardian. This is, it was published in, in, on March 28th. It's called, quote, Cold War Echoes as African Leaders Resist Criticizing Putin's War. And the sub, subtitle says, Many remember Moscow's support for liberation from colonial rule, and a strong anti-imperialist feeling remains. It's, it's pretty incredible seeing The Guardian, this just like complete neoliberal rag, use the term anti-imperialist. But it's true that, you know, across the African continent, there are still governments that are run by some of these parties that led, you know, armed uprisings against colonialism. And they have not joined in this Western campaign to try to isolate Russia over the war in Ukraine. They uh, they recognize the role of the West in, in creating this war in Ukraine back in 2014. And then Russia, you know, intervened. But eight years after the war already began. And there's a few lines in here I just want to read from this Guardian article because it's really revealing. Here's, uh, here's, this is from the Guardian. Quote, many countries across the continent are still ruled by parties that were supported by Moscow during their struggles for liberation from colonial or white supremacist rule. Though few among their youthful populations experienced the bitter battles of the 1960s, 70s, or 80s, Leaders of ruling parties in South Africa, Zimbabwe, Angola, and Mozambique remember how Soviet weapons, cash, and advisors helped win freedom. So, I mean, that, that's, I mean, a very important historical context. I was actually pretty surprised to see The Guardian even acknowledge that because a lot of this article is so condescending and, and pretty much racist when it's it basically just treating like, like Africa as you know, all these countries in Africa are supposedly like authoritarian and they like Russia because it's not a democracy or whatever. But I mean, they also acknowledge that that Russia has a history and specifically under the Soviet Union. But even still today, I mean, Russia has this foreign policy of supporting countries in Africa that have waged anti-colonialist revolutions. And there was another uh, quote in this article where they say in the Sahel region in northern part of Africa, there is a strong anti-Western feeling, an anti-imperialist tendency in public opinion, and anti-imperialist means anti-U.S. and the West. They say, quoting this this guy from, or this uh, analyst uh, from the International Crisis Group, which is a Western government-backed, just like complete intelligence cutout. So, I mean, but of course, they they try to demean anti-imperialist sentiment, but it is very deep across the African continent for obvious reasons. So yeah, good, very good question. I'm going to take Aaron now next in the callers. Go ahead, Aaron. Aaron, you're muted. Okay, sorry. My first time. Okay, hey, hey, Ben. Uh, I saw you... Um, I saw what you tweeted at Glenn uh, Greenwald uh, just recently about, you know, these right wing, quote, unquote, anti-war people in Congress and, you know, on the mainstream media. And I was just wondering if you could expand on that a little bit, because, you know, primarily my number one issue in life is being anti-war and there's no anti-war left wing. There's nothing going on anti-war in, uh, in the left wing anymore. So it's confusing because generally I'm, you know, I'm pretty in line with you and your colleagues politically, but um, the only time you can 
even get a, and you know, I saw what Rand Paul just did this afternoon. And so I wonder, you know, if you could expand on your thoughts uh, regarding this, you know, if phony, I guess it's mostly phony, uh, anti-imperialist, you know, right wing thing that's going on right now. Yeah, I mean, I understand the sentiment, but I have to strongly disagree with people who say that that the left is not anti-war. I would say the only people in the U.S. who are anti-war are on the left because, I mean, these like so-called right-wing populists who claim to be anti-war, they're, none of them are anti-war. They're all extremely inconsistent. I mean, even Rand Paul, who like is more, at least more consistent certainly than like, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson and Trump and Ron DeSantis, who are all completely pro-war on China, they're pro-war in Iran, they're pro-war in Cuba, pro-war in Venezuela. I mean, even Rand Paul, who is more libertarian than all of them, let's not forget, Rand Paul, he gave this speech where he said that he would support using drones on U.S. soil to kill thieves. Like, I mean, Rand Paul has been so inconsistent on this stuff, and his position on Venezuela and Cuba, I mean, so many of these people, at least... I have to give a little credit to Ron Paul. I deeply disagree with Ron Paul on so many things, on economics and, and many other things. But at least he's been a little more consistent than Rand Paul, who claims to be anti-war. And, you know, Rand Paul has spoken out against the war in Yemen. He's been critical of the proxy war against Russia. But on other things, you know, Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, China, he's been awful. And so many of these people have been awful. And really what it comes down to is it's all cynical branding. The only people in U.S. politics who are anti-war are the left. And when I say the left, it's not the Democrats, because the Democrats have never been a left-wing party. I mean, historically, obviously, the, the Democrats, as you know, as these charlatans in, in Fox News like to point out, that the Democrats were the, the party of slavery. I mean, that's true until party realignment. They don't talk about, you know, party realignment with FDR and the Democrats becoming more associated with you know, uh, center left at best politics. But I mean, th that was a brief historical moment. The, the Democratic Party has been thoroughly right wing, just like the Republican Party. And the reality is that the only people in the U.S. Polit political system who are consistently anti-war are socialists, specifically, not Democrats who are just neoliberals. They're capitalists. As Nancy Pelosi said, we're capitalists. Deal with it. No, I mean, the if you look at the U.S. anti-war movement, there are a few organizations, and they're all socialists, basically. There's the Answer Coalition, which is uh, a socialist, explicitly socialist, anti-imperialist organization. They organize, like, the vast majority of anti-war protests in the U.S. There is the, uh, you know, the United Coalition to Act, uh, UNAC, UNAW, which, um, I'm forgetting the acronym now, which is also a socialist uh, organization more affiliated with like Workers World Party and other groups. And then there's Code Pink. And Code Pink is not affiliated with the Socialist Party, but Code Pink is run by Medea Benjamin and Jody Evans, who are socialists. I mean, uh, and then, you know, Margaret Flowers and Popular Resistance, Black Agenda Report, like they organize protests as well. Um, Black Agenda um, for Peace, like um, uh, Black Alliance for Peace, excuse me, which is also affiliated with Black Agenda Report. The Black Alliance for Peace is explicitly socialist. The only actual anti-war groups in the U.S. are socialists. But, I mean, it's right. The critique of the Democratic Party is absolutely right. The Democratic Party is completely pro-war, including a lot of the so-called squad. I mean, but again, that's why the Democratic Party is not part of the left. But what's really concerning is, I mean, I've been involved in politics since... I really started getting involved in politics in like 2007, 2008. And really until like two years ago, like all of like the anti-war movement was associated with the left. Like the idea of like a right wing anti-war movement was completely preposterous because it is preposterous. None of these so-called anti-war right wing populists are actually anti-war. This is like something that goes specifically to Trump. And what happened is that Trump did this cynical thing where he claimed to be anti-war. And he he did this, you know, he claimed to be against the Iraq war, which actually ended up not being true. He claimed to be against the war in Libya, which also ended up not being true. He actually said that the U.S. should take Libya's oil. 
And then he also, uh, you know, when he came into office, he claimed that he was going to be against the neocons. And Trump appointed John Bolton, the arch neocon, as his national security advisor. He surrounded himself with neocons. He killed the second in command of the Iranian government, Qasem Soleimani, in an act of war. He imposed a brutal embargo on Venezuela as an economic war in Venezuela. He started an economic war, a trade war with China. And yeah, I mean, people said, well, he didn't start a full on military scale war. Yeah, I mean, but he certainly tried with Iran and he vastly expanded the war in Yemen. He vastly expanded the war in Afghanistan when he said he was going to end it. And people said, well, yeah, I mean, Trump tried to end it. But then like the generals and stuff, they prevented him. Yeah, but he was such an idiot that he just allowed himself to be pushed around by these people that he appointed. So uh, and now we see Ron DeSantis who is, you know, potentially going to be president after Trump if Trump doesn't come back in this upcoming election. And I think he actually might. Ron DeSantis is extremely pro-war on Cuba. He's strong. I mean, we, we need to have a, an expanded understanding of war. OK, maybe he's not calling for bombing Cuba, but he's calling for imposing more and more sanctions for overthrowing the Cuban government. He's calling for war basically on Iran. Ron DeSantis, like Trump, is extremely pro-Israel. You can't support apartheid Israel and say that you're anti-war. So this idea of like this like anti-war right is absurd. What actually is happening is there there's a split within the ruling class in the United States and within Western Europe, by the way, about who the target of the empire is. There are people who think that the target of empire should be Russia and people who think the target of the empire should be China. And if you watch Tucker Carlson, who's a complete charlatan, Tucker Carlson tried to join the CIA. He also, by the way, strongly supported the Iraq war, and he called Iraqis monkeys. I mean, he's a complete white supremacist. And not only does he support war in Cuba, war in Venezuela, and war on Iran, he also supports war on China. But he opposes war on Russia, so some people say that, well, Tucker Carlson is anti-war. Tucker Carlson is not anti-war. Listen to his rhetoric on China. Maybe he's not calling for bombing China, but he's calling for economic war in China. He's calling for hybrid war on China. He's calling for information war and cyber war in China. So what's actually happening is there's a split within the ruling class in the U.S. and Western Europe. And a lot of the liberals, they want war on Russia. And a lot of the conservatives want war on China. And of course, many of the liberals also want war in China, and some of the conservatives also want war in Russia. But this is a cynical, ridiculous marketing campaign by some elements of the Republican Party, just as they claim to be opposed to big corporations now. You see Tucker Carlson will go up and say, you know, Amazon is bad and all this stuff. I mean, but they don't support actually increasing taxes on the rich. This is all a cynical marketing campaign because some corporations, because they're trying to appeal to millennials, they've pretended to be like woke. They've supported like Black Lives Matter and feminism or whatever, but they don't care about that. Corporations aren't woke. Corporations are interested in one thing, increasing returns for on the stocks, increase, re, re, increasing the profits for their shareholders. And they're just doing this as part of a marketing campaign. So then some Republicans say that they're against big corporations. They're not against big corporations. Both parties strongly support big corporations. And similarly, there are some Republicans and, you know, some people on Fox News who claim to be against war. They're not against war. They support wars against different targets. And what's really stressful and really uh, absurd is to see some people like Glenn, Glenn Greenwald and some others, who have become full-on apologists for these these right-wing Republicans who are not actually anti-war. They don't want war in Russia. That's true. So when it comes to specifically the proxy war in Russia, their position is much better than many Democrats. But they want war in China. They want war in Iran. They love Israel. They love apartheid Israel. And let's not forget Trump's role in supporting Israel even more deeply than any other president. And of course, the Democrats love Israel too, so it's bipartisan. So anyway, what I'm saying here is that, I mean, I've been involved in the anti-war movement since like 2007, 2008. And I remember like really up for from then up until Trump, everyone recognized in the anti-war movement that both parties 
we're pro-war, we're pro-imperialist, and we're neoliberal. That neither party is a lesser evil. And just as I've never voted for a Democrat in a presidential election, I mean, uh, I, this, I don't believe in this lesser evilism nonsense. But what's absurd is seeing some people, they suddenly have adopted lesser evilism when it comes to Republicans. They say, well, yeah, uh, I don't believe in lesser evilism for Democrats, but for some reason they now think that the Republicans are a lesser evil. No, both parties are pro-war. Both parties are pro-corporate. Both parties are pro-imperialist. The difference is, yes, certain elements of the capitalist class support the Democrats, and certain elements of the capitalist class support the Republicans. And there is a split with going on within the ruling class. But neither neither faction is anti-war. And, and the attempt by Glenn Greenwald and these others to talk about so-called anti-war Republicans, I mean, it's really cynical. And they've been consuming too much Fox News. And that just, like, that gets to your brain. Like, no one can watch Tucker Carlson's coverage of China, Iran, and Cuba and say with a straight face that that guy's anti-war. So, um, any other people want to join for a question here? I'll pick, I can take like another question or two before wrapping this up. Please feel free to join in the, uh, the caller queue. And, uh, well, I guess there's no one else. So I don't know if Aaron wanted to join back again. So I'll let, I'll let you join in again if you want, Aaron. Okay. Uh, no, uh, I just, that was, uh, that was a great description that you just gave me. And, uh, I just, you know, I, I was watching like a video of Claire Daly, you know, the Irish politician. And I was just thinking like, why can't we just even have one fucking person on in the Congress or the Senate on our side that, that, that just one, you know, so, so you can get a little wobbly about this, like, like you're saying, like Greenwald's doing, where just, we're just so thirsty to hear anything anti-war that, yeah, we can, we can get a little confused. So you, but um, you, you definitely cleared up my confusion a little bit. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, like I said, I, I remember very vividly the Obama elections and I remember very vividly Everyone in the anti-war movement taking the position of, uh, you know, no, against lesser evilism, especially Black Agenda Report. I mean, Black Agenda Report was such an important voice and Glenn Ford, rest in peace. And what's so weird is seeing some people who back when when it was with Obama, they were, yeah, we're against lesser evilism. But now suddenly they are for lesser evilism for like Trump. And again, I mean... Yeah, Trump, he didn't technically start a full-on new war. I mean, Biden hasn't either, technically, uh, although he's doing this proxy war. But Trump expanded the war in Yemen, expanded the war in Afghanistan. He waged economic war on, on Venezuela and Cuba and killed Iranian officials. So, I mean, like, uh, it's it's really strange to see. And... Fortunately, I mean, if you look at if you go to an actual anti-war protest in the U.S., it's going to be organized by one of those groups I mentioned, the Answer Coalition. It's going to be organized by Code Pink. I mean, these are socialist organizations. Unfortunately, the anti-war movement is really small in the U.S., but I mean, it's it's been growing in recent years. And what's really sad to see is how effective some liberal groups have been trying to market this proxy war against Russia as like a progressive war, trying to portray Russia as like far right. And, and of course, this is really related to, to Russiagate, right? Because if you believe that like Trump was secretly like a Russian Putin puppet or whatever, then that has really helped Democrats try to sell this proxy war. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm really worried that Russiagate just did so much damage to a lot of like the liberal and even progressive base that they now want strongly want war and war in Russia in specific. But like I said, we have to keep our eye on eyes on what's actually happening and and the fort not not like lose our uh, lose what's going on like the forest for the trees. Right. The reality is that there's a split within the capitalist class within the ruling class and 
the Democrats are much more anti-Russia, and they're still anti-China, but they're not as extremely anti-China as the Republicans. And the Republicans, many of them are, are softer on Russia and are very pro, uh, are soft in Russia and very anti-China. And this is also similar in Europe. Like Marine Le Pen, the, the far-right candidate in France, was also portrayed as anti-war, which is absurd. She wants war in China. The difference is that she is much, much softer on Russia, and she gave speeches in which she said that she wants to unite with Russia against China. So we see something very similar in Europe. So uh, I'm going to let... Uh, like Moni and Monica jump in here again. Thanks. Um, yeah, when you said uh, this picture of Russia as far right, uh, it made me think of like um, where they're working with or speaking with, um, you know, certain parts of the supposed left. And I think your video on um, the failures of the western left throughout history was like so helpful i didn't know that um like even during vietnam this was an issue but um i you know we could demonstrate so much evidence of um fascism in ukraine um but certain sectors of the left uh like try to hammer on like there's just so many fascists on both sides and Russia also has a bunch of fascists and things like that so if you could speak to you know um, that aspect if you know more clearly like where um, like how to combat that and also um, you know that like pretty much anytime obviously anytime the United States is um, in support of some military operation um it's generally going to have negative effects for the global South and the global working class. But um, yeah, if you want to talk a bit to that, like kind of debunking kind of these ideas of, uh, you know, Russia is, is bad also. And, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, th this is, this is a good question. I mean, I, I talked about this in the, in the previous call, um, previous stream here, people want to check out uh, talking about Ukraine but in, um, in briefer terms, Putin is not far right. In the context of Russian politics, Putin and his party are centrists. Now, they're certainly not leftists. They're not on the left. And the main opposition party in Russia, the second biggest party in the country after Putin's United Russia Party, is the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, which is obviously a left-wing party. Putin domestically is a centrist, but he's also a conservative, right? But he's not far right. There is a far right in Russia that is racist, that is anti-Semitic, that is against immigrants, that is, you know, very extreme. Yes, Putin has some conservative views that I don't agree with. That's true for many countries around the world. And that's true for some countries in the global south. I mean, Iran is a good example. You know, Iran's foreign policy has objectively been in support of many liberation struggles like in Palestine and Syria and Yemen. But of course, you know, its foreign policy is different from its domestic policy. Iran's domestic policy is quite conservative. Russia is very similar. But the idea that Russia is fascist is a completely absurd. First of all, Russia, the Russian government has gone down, gone out, gone pretty far in cracking down on fascism. Like there are, there are many reports, even in Western media outlets, about Putin cracking down on fascists, on actual fascists and on anti-Semites. Putin is very sensitive to these topics. And what's funny is sometimes the far right in Russia attacks Putin, claiming that he's like a puppet of the Jews or whatever. Like he's very sensitive to these topics, especially issues of racism within Russia, which is complicated within the Russian Federation because there is discrimination against, for instance, you know, people from Central Asia who had been part of the Soviet Union, people from Armenia, people from Azerbaijan and people from the Caucasus. Uh, people from Chechnya. I mean, again, I'm not saying Putin is a leftist. He's certainly not. In the context of Russian politics, he's a centrist. But the idea that he's a fascist is completely false and absurd. Now, again, we can disagree with his odious positions on LGBT rights and other issues. I mean, I don't agree with them. I think they're reprehensible. But again, he's not unique in that sense. That's true for many countries around the world. And these are complex discussions. And it's very similar to like pinkwashing, right? This is like the the liberal Zionists who say, well, uh, you know, Palestinians are, 
are they they all hate LGBT people, which is of course an, a massive oversimplification. It's actually uh, you know there are many Palestinians who support LGBT rights. It's a complicated issue. So I mean that that's just yet another example of this kind of like liberal imperialist pinkwashing of Russia. Uh, Russia is not at all a fascist country. The Russian government has taken actions cracking down on fascists. And on the other hand, in Ukraine, if you're a fascist, you're probably going to get a weapon. They're going to give you an assault rifle and let you join the military. That's the difference between Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine, since 2014, has had a massive infiltration of the far right of neo-Nazi forces who actually do Nazi salutes and use white supremacist symbols they were incorporated into the Ukrainian National Guard after the U.S.-backed coup in 2014. Azov is one of the most well-known examples, but not just Azov. There are other groups, the IDAR Battalion, you know, the Tornado Battalion. There are many of these white supremacist groups and straight-up neo-Nazis who were co- incorporated into the Ukrainian state. And why is that? It's not because Zelensky is a secret Nazi. I mean, he's not. It's because they recognize that the most loyal fighters that are the most ferocious fighters who are willing to put their lives on the line because they're ideologically motivated are the Nazis and fascists. If you're just like some average Joe in Ukraine who doesn't believe in anything, you're like, you're not going to put your life on the line to go fight against Russians. You're probably just going to flee the country. Like, why would you die for your country? The people who are going to die for Ukraine in this fight against Russia as cannon fodder for NATO are the Nazis and fascists, just as in Syria, We constantly heard this propaganda about so-called moderate rebels. Well, the people who are the most dedicated fighters were the far-right extremists who were, you know, hardline Salafi jihadists who believe that, you know, if they were fighting, they were going to go to heaven and and they were fighting the infidels and killing the Shia unbelievers and all this stuff. I mean, it's very similar. But it's so similar also to the propaganda used against Syria, right? There was this liberal imperialist propaganda saying, you have to support rebranded al-Qaeda and the CIA in this war in, this proxy war in Syria because As- Bashar al-Assad is, is a fascist. He's a Nazi. It's the same propaganda. Meanwhile, the Western-backed so-called rebels were carrying out genocide against ethnic and religious minorities in Syria. They were the actual fascists. So uh, it's, it's yet another example of liberal imperialists saying that, that that the other side, the target of Western empire, the target of NATO are fascists. They, they also did this for Yugoslavia. If you don't support the war on the Serbs, you're a fascist. Meanwhile, they're the ones supporting actual fascists. This is, you know, a classic tactic that imperialism has often used to, to confuse people. But, you know, I'm, I'm rounding up nearly an hour here. So I want to thank everyone who joined. We had a pretty good turnout. And uh, I, I, I'm doing two of these a week here at Call-In. So definitely keep an eye out. I'll be posting about it on Twitter. And people can join and ask questions. And I'll talk about what's going on latest, uh, you know, in the news and politics. I do two, two uh, calls here on Call-In every week between like 45 minutes and an hour. So definitely check in next week. And I want to thank everyone for joining here. And I'll see you next time.